1: An everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host,
0: NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Monday, April 6th, and today we have something a little bit different that I'm really excited about. It has obviously been a tremendously trying time for the last few months as the real implications of coronavirus and the economic shutdown became clear, this is something that I think will leave permanent changes to big parts of our economy, our psyches, our society as a whole. And so today I have a guest who's basically been obsessively thinking about what all those implications are. So it started with him just trying to think about the second order effects of the coronavirus crisis, Take, for example, people buying shirts but not pants because they're on Zoom calls. It's a second-order effect, or actually a third-order effect after being on Zoom calls because they have to work from home. Um, This is something that Walmart is actually seeing. Sales of shirts are up but not pants. So my guest, Emerson Sparts, started a document on Google, got a friend involved, and they got a whole bunch more people involved, and now thousands and thousands of people are contributing to this document around second-order effects of this corona crisis that is across dimensions of family, business, and so much more. Emerson shares a little bit about his background at the beginning of our conversation, but he is a true, true multi-hyphenate and someone who is just obsessed basically with learning. That, I think, is his hallmark. Now, he turns that into lots of really, really interesting projects. His real focus historically was virality, right? So he dropped out of middle school and started MuggleNet, which very quickly became the biggest Harry Potter fan site in the world. And that led him into create an entire media company based around virality and social media and understanding that. So his background is, is kind of diverse and interesting, but it all comes back to trying as much as he can to learn about everything and develop new mental models. So he's kind of an interesting Sherpa or a guide to this conversation. But one of the things that makes this interview so different is that It's actually full of a lot of optimism about what happens on the other side. And at core, that optimism comes from, I think, a place of discovering what happens when all of humanity learns to use the tools of creation of the internet really well. He has a lot of ideas for how that might be a net good for us. And so, obviously, the phrase creative destruction, we're in the destruction phase right now, but there is something good that can come out of this as well. As always, I want to make sure that we're never minimizing the real pain that people are feeling, the real dislocation on so many different levels, economically, psychologically, etc. This is a trying time, and it continues to be, and unfortunately, I think it will continue to be for a while, right? There is no normal on the other side of this. There's only what's left and what we rebuild, and at least in this conversation, we're focused on that last part, what we rebuild. So I hope you enjoy it, and I'll catch you back here soon with the wrap-up. Now, as always, these interviews are edited extremely lightly. There's some excited profanity capturing the the actual energy. So keep that in mind as you're listening and let's dive in. All right. I'm here with Emerson. Emerson, thanks so much for joining. Excited to be here. Um, okay. So uh, I'm super excited for this episode. I think, you know, you put a context around something that I've been thinking about for weeks and weeks and weeks now, which is I tweeted out a few weeks ago, are you in the this changes nothing or this changes everything camp, right? And it was purposefully uh, binary. And obviously, what I wanted to see is what people wanted to jump in with in terms of particularly around the it changes everything. Um, and I've been in this kind of it changes everything camp, not in some kind of glib way, but in these very specific ways. And so uh, you've put together this project or kind of convened, I would say this project around second-order effects coming off of the coronavirus crisis. Um, and I want to I, I get into what that actually means. But first, can you just give a little bit of your background for people who might not know all of your various uh, enterprises extending back to middle school for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll cover it a little bit differently, too, because I'm going to say a bunch of weird and I'm going to make a whole bunch of wildly unsupported claims. And so if I establish a little bit more credibility in advance, uh, it'll, <laughs> it'll make a little more sense. Perfect. So, um, so when I was 12, I convinced my parents to let me drop out of school and homeschool myself month later created muggle net uh which uh, is the number one harry potter website so that was my whole adolescence was running that um built that to about 50 million monthly visitors and or monthly views. and then um and then uh eventually i um i decided to go to college for fun got bored was going to drop out start another business uh but before i did i set a goal of reading one nonfiction book every single day and uh you know business politics psychology technology um uh, basically, just trying to build up the most robust, um, you know, category uh, like library of mental models possible, um, so that I'd be able to make the uh, best and like highest fidelity large scale predictions. And um, so I ended up building all these different systems to maximize my ability to retain the information and apply the information. Um, and then eventually I ended up starting another business. Um, I was always really obsessed with virality. Like to me, like the ability to make things go viral was like a uh, the closest you get to having a superpower. And so I just really obsessed over understanding, wanting to understand how people think and how systems work um, as much as possible. And then I just started experimenting like crazy with different types of um, virality engines. And um, some of them worked. And then fast forward, um, ended up raising 35 million, um, did the whole, you know, uh, did that whole thing, <laughs> uh, and yep. building, uh, a, uh, media company with 50 million monthly visitors. Um, and, um, ha- and ha- so I'm excited to, uh, kind of take some of those lenses and apply them to this current situation of uh, reality in particular. Um, actually a lot of my ideas came from studying epidemiology and virology. Uh, so I looked like the kooky guy who was like, you're <laughs> referencing things like are not in uh totally inappropriate marketing contexts. Um, so <laughs> it'll be a, a fun, it's a, it's been a fun confluence, um, of, uh, of interests.
0: Okay, great. So perfect. This is the background. Uh, you get maybe how, how Emerson uh, joins this party. Talk to me about second order effects. How did you start getting uh, thinking about this? What is a second order effect? Um, and then what is this project that, that you initiated?
1: Okay. So, um, <laughs> all right. So in situations like this, basically uh, when there's a tremendous amount of volatility, so we're, we're going through one of those periods right now where um, most people think about time as happening on linearly, uh, but time doesn't really work like that, especially with markets, right? So you have periods where, uh, you know, years happen in weeks and you have periods where weeks happen in years. Um, so this is one of those periods where there is, there is just years of stuff happening, um, you know, in, in, you know, every day.
0: Um, my my actual my favorite way of or speaking of mental models the most interesting one for this, which I've mentioned I think on the podcast before. But Stephen Jay Gould uh, was a biologist and uh, looked at evolutionary biology, and he uh, popularized a theory called punctuated equilibrium. And basically, what he what he went and found is that evolution didn't happen on this continuous scale, kind of like we thought, right? It didn't just uh, just go up kind of in, in a very predictable way. There were these long periods of nothing happening and these moments of explosion, right, where, where tons and tons of stuff happened very, very quickly. And he called that punctuated equilibrium. And, and that this is a punctuated equilibrium moment uh, in so many ways. Absolutely. That's actually one of my favorite mental models. And um, and
1: yeah, so we're going through one of those periods right now. Um, and so like, if, if you literally just plot out how much area there is under the curve in these periods of punctuated equilibrium, like all the stuff happens in these brief windows. So that means it's very exciting if you're the kind of person who, um, likes to, uh, you know, if you're looking for leverage basically. And and I, I, I think of myself as basically being a, uh, a, a hunter for the the mother of all leverage points. Um, so I just spend a ton of time researching a wide variety of different, um, uh, subject areas and topics and industries, and I just look for the the you know the the the, the white whale of mispricings, right? And so these are the windows where you know you can actually you know you you could actually beat the market because uh, there 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 is no smartest guys in the room who have everything figured out um, because too much is happening too quickly, um, uh, and I say beat the market in a more metaphorical way. But anyway, so so there's this window where tons of stuff are happening. Um, nobody has basically the, the better your your mental model stack is, uh, the more clear your picture of reality is. And um, I've I've spent a lot of time basically bulking up like crazy to build out this um, this stack, um, just like you would if you were a weightlifter, right? Like building those muscles um, to be able to see the world more clearly in situations like this. So just for for fun, um, I and uh, my friend Michael Simmons, um, we just started like writing down tons of second order effects uh, of, of coronavirus um, because I'd spent a bunch of time talking to other entrepreneurs and kicking around ideas. And uh, I mean, the amount of content that's coming online every day right now, I mean, all of humanity is working on this <laughs> to some extent. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's, uh, you know, people, everyone in every industry likes to say that their industry has this, you know, tidal wave of, of information just flooding in. Uh, but those now look like trickles compared to what's happening right now <clears throat> um, as humanity has its, its uh, collective sites set uh, on, on a a single common enemy for the first time in history. Um, so we just decided, we just started, um, dumping ideas in a document and then, um, the ideas list got really long and we started sharing it with some friends and then they started contributing too. And all of a sudden, uh, it just became this, this real thing where there's just thousands of people that are contributing to it, um, and categorizing, um, and cataloging, um, as many second and third order effects of coronavirus as possible. Um, and it's really interesting because there's so many things where, uh, that 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 everyone has their own kind of unique skills and experiences and windows in the world. So the, the list is getting long real fast.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, so you, you posted about this, I think on Fridays when I saw it and I was like, okay, we have to do this podcast. Cause it's, it's fascinating. And it, like I said, it gives context to talk about all these different things, which I haven't had context for right now. There's more than like 75 people, uh, actively looking at the page as we're speaking. Right. I just saw a comment go up. Um, so the super, super interesting. Uh, talk to me, what, it, define second order effects, third order effects. I think that people have like an intuitive sense of what that is, but maybe let's walk through a specific example that gives people people a context for that. And then we can just dive into, you know, I think our plan for this is really to just look across the spectrum of some of these second order effects uh, and discuss them in in the context of Corona.
1: Yeah, totally. So um, second order effects are a super useful mental model. Um, And uh, I'll just give you an example. So a first order effect would be like cars are invented. So once cars are invented, then the second order effects of cars being invented would be things like, um, you know, manufacturing has to scale or like gas stations are now created. There's accidents that suddenly happen. Um, roads are paved. You know, people were complaining about how horse manure would pile up in the streets when horses were growing, but then cars obviously replace the horse manure problem. So those are all examples of second order effects. And then third order effects are just one further downstream um, in the causal chain, right? So as you have more accidents, there are products like car insurance that are created. As you have more gas stations, there are um, gas station networks that are created. As you have more roads, then eventually you have more highways. And so what's really exciting right now um, with, uh, you know, I mean, the, the chaos is a, is a ladder, right? So obviously there's tremendous hardship and suffering happening in the world as a result of this, um, but there's also tremendous opportunity like the you know Chinese uh, character.
0: Um, so, So that's the way that I think about it. So this is a. I think this is a relevant context for this. We're we're now firmly past the place I believe where um, we can expect things to just return to normal. Um, Biology uh, last week said he tweeted out something that just perfectly encapsulated this for me. He basically said, I, "I don't think people understand that there's no normal to return to on the other side of this." And so, in a lot of ways, this list reads like uh, like a, a a set of what that new, that disruption to normal is going to look like, right? So you guys have organized it into personal business, investing, education, government, and other, uh, which is kind of a, a grab bag of things at the moment. Um, I thought maybe we could start at personal because uh, I, I think that some of these are the most intuitive, just for for people who are still wrapping their head around this idea of second order effects, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's look at uh, uh, family, right? So uh, if you look at this uh, the, the chart it's, you know, the, the second order impact is husband, kids, and wives spend 10 X as much time together.
1: Yeah. First of all, isn't this just an interesting start? So, so there's one like really high level pattern that's happening here is that basically humanity is in. So if, if you're, if you're confused about why like government, um, responses seem to be so wildly inadequate, it's because if you think of humanity as a person, uh, humanity is basically in fight or flight right now, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. So humanity is basically freezing and no one knows what to do. Um, and we're not using our, uh, humanity's prefrontal cortex (laughs) to make rational decisions yet. Um, so we're doing all kinds of terrible things. Um, and one of the effects of being in this freeze uh, phase is that, uh, people aren't doing anything. They aren't going anywhere. They're, they're at home. Right. And so, uh, so I'll just rattle off some of the, some of the interesting kind of implications of people being stuck at home together from a family perspective. Um, so yeah, obviously just way more sex is kind of an obvious one. Uh, people have nothing to do. They're, together that just tends to happen. Um, although not necessarily with, uh, other people, you know, not like promiscuous, uh, or cheating or things like that, but you know, sex like monogamous sex. So that would lead to more babies, um, which could lead to an overwhelm of hospitals, um, starting nine months from now, <laughs> uh, especially hospitals that aren't especially, uh, in good shape to be able to, uh, handle that increased load. Um, so that might lead to an increase in home births. Right. And then people having to like, look up, you know, Training um, for how to like deliver babies at home because they don't want to go risk getting infected in the hospital. Or entrepreneurs starting up like you know mobile clinics. Or you know there's just so many different things to think about. You've got abuse, like increases in abuse. You've got increases in arguments, divorce rates, uh, which could lead to more couples counseling, more divorce lawyers, virtual midwives. Um, there's, there's a lot of different angles to kind uh, of to, to dive into. Well,
0: and I think one of the things that's interesting about this example as well that is uh, relevant for our conversation more broadly is that. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these phenomena can have uh, equal and opposite impacts, right? It just based on context, right? So uh, for some people, there's, uh, you're likely to see, you know, uh, coming togetherness, like you pointed out, right? Like more kids, uh, more things happening, reevaluation of prioritization uh, of families, like that's definitely a theme that I've seen a lot, right? I noticed that the first few days when everyone was locked down all the tweets were about people complaining uh, about how hard it was, right, or recognizing how hard it was. And then a few days later is mostly about like, people's moments with their family, right, they stopped complaining, because it has just gotten normal again. Um, And now I don't want to be overly glib about that. But that's like one set of experience, whereas we have seen in every place, a a significant increase in uh, domestic abuse calls, right. Uh, And places like New York and France, places that have been locked down for a while are having to deal with that. So the point here being that same context can create wildly different outcomes in these second order effects.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's like the way that I think about this is just like how so every proverb that, that you've ever heard um, is uh, people, you know, every proverb is true, um, because it's it, basically proverbs represent compressed wisdom, like ideas that have been passed on, you know, for hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, but they're not true for everybody, right? So maybe 20% of people, like if you have two opposite proverbs, maybe 20% of people, like proverb B will be correct for their situation, or like 80% of people, proverb A will be correct to apply to their situation, right? And this is a different kind of manifestation of the same concept where like you, as, as we're basically, we've taken like the global, um, we've taken all of our existing systems and we've just shaken them up, right? And so um, one way that I also think about it is like, um, there's really, really interesting data showing that when there are catastrophic events, um, it, it forces people out of their existing routines and they're forced to explore right so people get stuck in these explore uh, explore exploit local maximus right where they are just um they're doing one thing for example like people um what happens is like you're 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 going your daily commute right and most people just kind of they explore a little bit to find the best way to get to work and then they don't ever experiment ever again and then you know they'll have uh you know something catastrophic will happen or they'll have to close they'll close down major highways and then people are sort of forced to like go and experiment and try new things um and then uh fairly reliably, it seems on average, about 5% of people find a faster route than than the one that they've been driving their whole life uh, when these things happen. Um, Which is when you you think about you take that, and then you generalize that to all different types of systems at all different scales across the whole world, um, there's gonna be so much more exploring that goes on, um, because people are forced to because they can't just go back into their existing routines, uh, like they were before. And so there's just so much innovation that's going to come out of this, um, as people are forced to confront new problems that they never had to confront previously, or didn't know that they were supposed to try to confront previously.
0: What are, what are the most interesting examples of that 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 have started to pop up on this list or what are the domains that you find uh, most interesting from, from that you're seeing from this list? Okay. So I would say like,
1: uh, 90% of all my thinking is basically about the implications of what happens when humanity, uh, merges with the internet, which is basically what's happening right now. Uh, this is a very real, in a very real sense. Um, what, you know, uh, Ernest Cline wrote in ready player one, uh, humanity is merging with the Oasis right now as, as the world was crumbling, uh, we retreated into the oasis, um, and it led to a explosion of art and creativity, um, and beauty, and pain, and struggle, and all things that make humanity humanity. Right? So, so, so basically, like, what are the implications of that? Um, because you know, as as people had increasingly shifted a larger and larger percentage of all their energy to their internet selves, um, and especially you know, the younger you are, the more you are, right? Um, so so, what are the implications of that? Right? So suddenly now we're in a situation where um, there is more free time uh, for ex- creative expression than you know perhaps ever before in history and by a long shot, um, as most people have, uh, like most of the world is, is in a, has a very simple, similar routine, right. Where they get up and they basically do some re- reasonably repetitive, um, you know, manual, uh, you know, task for, you know, eight, 10 hours or whatever. Um, and then they go home and then they watch TV for about two thirds of their time. Um, and then they spend a little bit of time on other stuff and they go to bed. Right. So there's only like two giant chunks of people's time. There's TV, uh, which is basically where you teleport into the bodies of, um, you know, fictional characters and then you experience their world um, vicariously. Um, or you're doing your manual tasks at work, and I happen to be of the opinion that a large percentage of all the work that humanity does um, is not productive, um, and we could, uh, <laughs> you know, like graver bullshit jobs esque kind of ways of looking at the world. Um, and so one thing that's be interesting is like, what are the implications as we see that a lot of people's jobs weren't actually creating value for the world and were make work in various ways. Um, so, but anyway, the, but the main thing I, was th- I think about is like, okay, so humanity is now spending all their time online. We're stuck at home. We can't make money at our current jobs because we can't go anywhere. Right? We're frozen in place. Um, so we have to, the internet is our, is our, is our only way to interact with the rest of humanity. So a lot of people are now finally in, in a position where they're like, okay, well, I guess I better learn how to use the internet, um, and, and use it better, right? Not just use it as a, as at a base level, but like, there's huge differences in the levels of how good people are using the internet, right? Most people don't even think to Google basic stuff. And they just spend a lot of time like solving pointless problems that humanity's already solved. and They just learned how to Remember to Google stuff, you know, tap into the global brain. So anyway, so, so I think we're going to see this like flourishing of human creativity in all kinds of fascinating ways. So for example, um, one of the most um, important ways that you can create value for humanity right now is to learn to code. Obviously not everybody, but like just do the math on this at a very simple level and you'll see how, how significant the implications of this are. So there's about 20 million developers in the world right now. 20, 20 million might seem like a lot, but in the context of 7.5 billion people, that's not a lot. Um, so, uh, suddenly if you have, you know, let's say, uh, just imagine like a billion people that are stuck at home and can't go anywhere. Um, and I can imagine, you know, you know, tens of millions of those people uh, suddenly finding the motivation to learn to code. And then what happens as a result of, you know, doubling or even tripling the number of, um, you know, programmers in the world, like think of all the, think of all the, the creativity that that could unleash, right. Or learning languages like English, for example. So I, I travel a lot. And one thing that's abundantly clear is that English is, well, it's the language of science. It's the language of business. It's the language of the internet. Um, and it's the language of opportunity because if you're in a third world country, um, if you know English and you have internet connection, like there are far more, um, ways that you can make money. Uh, and, uh, and so it it really is like a, it from a mobility perspective, like a wealth mobility perspective. Um, you know, there are a few things that are more high leverage than learning to code and learning English. And suddenly now a lot of people have free time to learn those things. So I'm just really, really, really excited to see what happens. Like this is basically like a giant, like UBI kind of, uh, fantasy experiment, right? Where. We don't have actual UBI right now, but we have something that's somewhat similar to it where people have free time, right? Cuz that's where a lot of the UBI stuff um gets uh is, is interesting to explore. It's like what happens when people have free time? Uh, most people just, you know, they're specialists, right? They go to work, they do the one thing, and now they can actually go study all the other things. So there's just so much so many interesting things to think about.
0: Yeah, it's the specialist to generalist thing is really interesting. It's something that I noticed in the um, in the second-order effects document, this idea that people have been kind of rooted via the education system and then work into highly specialized roles, uh, at, who now might find themselves with time to go explore other things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, like basically, most people, you know, they're just they're 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 doing kind of like putting like one foot forward at a time to just because they're just struggling to survive, right? They're just trying to like pay the bills and keep the lights on and food on the table and so on. But this, obviously, like anything else, like obviously the the financial um, pressure is is significant. But there's nothing else you can do, right? You can't work if you're fired and, uh, no one will employ you because you don't have any skills that are, um, uh, valuable right now. Right. So you have even more pressure to learn how to create valuable skills, um, to contribute to humanity on the internet. And one thing too, that's interesting is like, so, so I was homeschooled obviously. And I I think homeschooling is, um, is, is a really useful, um, it's a really useful tool. It doesn't work for most people because it's difficult to structure it properly. And then there's tons of like important socialization that happens in school, but there's a lot of kids who, um, who like homeschooling was, was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, and you can see that by the fact that I, you know, I went from like just being a, like a somewhat normal kid to like starting, you know, one of the internet's largest websites like a month later, cause my wings were, you know, unclipped. And I think there's tons of other, you know, people out there that are like that. And this is like, this is just that nudge that they needed to, um, to like really express themselves, um, and, and pursue all kinds of weird, diverse interests that they normally don't have the time and energy, uh, to pursue. Um, and then, yeah, there's, oh man. And from a content creation perspective, oh my God, just think about like for a second, how many people, um, so ran a YouTuber. So if you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, it used to be not that long ago, like that they want to be astronauts. Um, if you ask them now, they say YouTubers, right? And what does that mean? Well, it basically means on some level, they want to be famous, but also they want to create. They're basically saying like, I want to create. And I think that's really important that they want to create because I mean, just look at what happened to China. Like once China um, finally, like, you know, once we, you know, back in the seventies the and eighties, we, you know, we told essentially, you know, a billion people that for the first time they were allowed to dream, right? Allowed to, um, to create. And, uh, obviously that's been a, a extraordinary amount of wealth, um, you know, created from that. And so in some ways there's something similar here where like, especially if, again, you need to make money somehow. Uh, YouTube is a reliable way to make money. Um, and so I can imagine, you know, I can imagine millions and millions and millions of people who otherwise weren't quite motivated enough, um, to, you know, dive into, you know, content creation as a way to make money and a way to express themselves suddenly, you know, being motivated to do that. And so I can see millions of new creators coming online, which, Interestingly, would actually I think have the effect of having you know fewer ad dollars. Like basically, advertisers are spending less money um, because there's obviously the economy is you know kind of shut down. So of course, advertisers are going to cut their ad budgets before they're going to cut you know other um, you know other parts of the business. Um, so I can see like ad rates going down, um, especially when you uh, factor in all these new um, content creators coming online. Um, but oh my god, the the, no, the types of new content we might see and oh, it's just there's so many interesting parts of that.
0: Yeah, it's it's taking me a lot to not start a like podcast training type business. So one of the things that's really interesting about podcasts in America versus podcasts in China um, is that the uh, there's a much more ingrained, uh, like you pay for an educational program via podcast model in, in China. Whereas obviously in the US, it's primarily entertainment and it's advertising driven. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that it's ever going to be. I mean, podcasting is still so in its infancy as a medium. And one of the things that I think that's really interesting that people Underestimate sometimes is that we have this model. Like, okay, so let's actually use this as a context to bring in the the good news and the bad news for small business. The bad news is that small businesses are being wiped out, right? Like, I, I mean, just uh, you know, I was reading Dan Price runs Gravity Payments in um, Seattle. He got uh, well known for figuring out basically how to give every employee a seventy thousand uh, dollar minimum salary. Uh, he's been in the news over the last few weeks because, you know, small businesses are their their primary business, right? They have 20,000 small businesses. Uh, but those businesses are just wiped out. Like it was like 50% overnight stopped, you know, being able to pay for their services. And so they figured out, basically, they, they, they convened as a company. And instead of doing layoffs, everyone agreed to a 20% cut. So they've been able to preserve their whole workforce, yada, yada, yada. Really, really interesting guy, really interesting company. But he was writing that t- most small businesses have 27 days of revenue loss before going bankrupt, right? Well, what day of the, the the shutdown are we on at this point? I've heard it's even lower. Restaurants, I think, have something like 16 or 17 days worth of cash usually. Um, so you have like this mass scale extinction of small businesses, even with these loans and stuff. Like, there's going to be so many people who are just hanging on that uh, that can barely come back, which I think has speaking of second order effects has impact on. Commercial retail, or, or sorry, commercial real estate. Rather, um, obviously, a ton of those businesses are going to come back in, which creates a whole new cycle of impacts. So that there's a, a whole lot of bad in that. The interesting thing about what you're talking about with kind of a, a creator economy is we're used to thinking about business models in terms of like actual businesses that have to support whole sets of teams and people. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about podcasts and YouTube, et cetera, is that it is it makes viable basically businesses of one you know uh small businesses of one for a lot more people than you would expect you know or it supplements income for people right because with a niche audience right like al- almost any interest in the world if you're a really great podcaster you can get to 50,000 100,000 200,000 people who download it right which is absolutely enough to, uh, i mean uh, ad ad cuts uh, ad price cuts notwithstanding to support an individual person right that's, that's probably more than most average jobs so there is like this interesting, uh, the, the, people I think underestimate the, the viability of the business model of content, um, for really, really niche areas.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's like the perfect quarantine business because you don't have to, uh, normally, you know, if, if let's say hypothetically, you wanted to make uh, $30,000 to, to, you know, to, to get by, um, in a normal business, uh, well here, um, well, what, obviously the distribution cost being zero, make it such that you can afford to, and also the startup costs are so low because you're just making content. Um, so it's just such a no brainer for people to explore, um, to, one thing that's interesting too, is like, so in thinking about second order effects of something like this, so it's, it's just gets really overwhelming really quickly. Um, especially, you know, if you change the assumptions of your model just a little bit. So for example, if you assume okay, the economy is basically completely shut down right now. And what that means is that no one's leaving their homes, which means they're not going to work, which means they're not making money. So, um, if you want to, if you, if you want to, um, systematically, um, catalog all the second order effects, um, so what I started doing was I just started like literally imagining myself driving through, um, the city. And just looking at all the restaurants and all the businesses that I had already memorized from where I lived in Chicago, um, and in San Francisco, and then just, you take every one of those businesses and you're like, what if they didn't exist? Uh, <laughs> or like what happens if they didn't have money? Right. Cause that, I mean, what's going to happen here, like you said, with 27 days cash, right. Is that basically, um, just like any other market, right. The weak hands get shaken out, you know, first. Right. And obviously with just in time supply chains, um, one thing interesting about just in time supply chains is that they exist at all scales. It's not just inventory. Like, Um, And this is one of those like anti-fragile shocks that just, that causes, you know, all the, the, the most fragile members of the population to die. Um, So, um, so there's just going to be, oh man, the number of opportunities for like new value creation as all those existing players get, get shaken out is just really, really, really
0: interesting to think about. So let's talk actually about the uh, manufacturing and supply chains. I think it's actually a bridge to, you know, one thing that I want to be careful of is not being like. You're, you're basically firmly on the creative side of creative destruction, but we're like, that's what you're thinking about, but we're living through the destruction, right? And I think that part of the reason to spend time focusing on the creative side is to help people figure out, it's almost like getting a preview of the future and, and figuring out what it's gonna mean to make better decisions in the short term. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and I, I'm sure you've seen this too, is this is creating a major shift in people's thinking around, uh, around manufacturing supply chains and uh, just globalization in general, right? You have so many people from, you know, blue states, red states, whatever, who are like, you know what, we actually probably need to be able to make things here, you know, like the idea of having entire sets of, uh, of goods that are important, be made exclusively other places seems not to be working right now. Um, and the interesting thing is that if that gets operationalized, right? Uh, you know, there, there's so many things that I think you're likely to see. Right, government creating new incentives to manufacture here and all this sort of stuff. Right, um, what people actually work on might also change. Right, you know. I don't necessarily think that it fundamentally ends the gig economy and side hustles and things like that, but you're gonna see a lot more jobs of people actually building things, right? And that's gonna have its own impacts in terms of what decisions they make about education. I, I think one of the one of the players it feels to me least likely to come out of this well is higher education. Yeah. could not agree more with that because um, it, it, it's
1: also interesting. thing. First of all, here's inter- a really, really interesting fact. So supply chains have been so fragile for so long that um, I was, I, so when I first like started considering the implications of just in time supply chains um, and the coronavirus impacts of it, and uh, I was, I was, by the way, I was panicking back in like mid January about all this. Can you define just in time supply chains for people too? Oh yeah. Basically Sorry, yeah. You it used to be that you, if you had a manufacturing plant, you'd have like piles of there, so that if your supply chains, uh, for whatever reason, couldn't get you stuff, then you could just still keep operating, right? But um, as technologies like the shipping container were invented um, and became popularized back in the '70s, um, costs to ship things globally um, pl- plummeted, right? Shipping costs went from like let's say 50% of the cost of the product down to seven percent uh, if you make it overseas. So what happened was obviously people just moved their manufacturing to whatever the cheapest place in the world was to make it because it only costs seven percent extra to ship it, you know, across the oceans. Um, so the result was that people didn't store inventories anymore, because why would you bother store inventories if you can just order it from China and it's there like five seconds later, right? So the result is that we, we were able to move much faster because we had all these, all this, um, energy stored as, as inventories, right? You, again, you have a pile of like stuff at your manufacturing plant, but that pile of stuff isn't creating value for the world, right? It's potential energy. Um, it's not until you actually manufacture it and people are using it that it converts into kinetic energy. Uh, where it creates value, right? Same thing with money, right? Money that's sitting there not being used is potential energy. But once that money is loaned or spent, it converts into kinetic energy and it creates value, right? That increases the velocity of money, which increases wealth, right? And the faster the money moves, the more wealth is created in general. Um, and so, so once I started thinking about the implications of just-in-time supply chains, which basically increases the overall fragility of the world, um, because we can't we can't withstand shocks to the system, um, because we don't have supplies lying around, right? So we have like, it's like having no safety buffer, right? Like imagine if you're climbing Everest and you only have one oxygen contain, uh, canister and that oxygen canister, um, you know, uh, breaks or something, right. Then you're, you're, f- you're super. F- so you need to carry extra ones with you. And we basically got rid of all of our extra oxygen canisters, um, because of these technologies, uh, which means that a lot of, you know, businesses are going to go under, um, because they didn't have the reserves to, to get through it. Right. Um, So this is just a reminder of the importance of having those um, reserves and also having um, robust systems built. So for example, um, so even the supply chain. So I started like just consuming a bunch of supply chain content and I was going through all the trade websites and listening to all the podcasts and like they weren't even talking about supply chain implications. Um, Most of them weren't talking about supply chain implications until shockingly late um, after it was already, to me, abundantly clear that supply chains were going to be a huge, huge, huge problem uh moving forward. Uh, which just shows like how little uh you know energy was was really put into thinking through the implications of these things and how not ready humanity was for all this. Uh, which is why Taleb called this a white swan, right? Because like pandemics have been a thing humanity's been dealing with since forever, like actual forever. <laughs> and you know, if you were paying attention, you would have noticed that, you know, the CDC had a budget, you know, a couple billion dollar budget, which is embarrassingly small, and um that uh that that something like this was was just bound to happen. It was just a question of when and what scale. And thank God this isn't Ebola or smallpox, right? Because we're going to get through this. It's going to suck, but like we're going to get through it.
0: So pandemics historically, obviously, are correlated with cities, right? Rise of cities, more population density, more people. I think cities are another really interesting thing to consider in the wake of this idea of you know your first point of the internet merging with humanity, right? Now, I say this as someone who lived in Chicago for a few years, then was in San Francisco for a decade, and now lives in the Hudson Valley, right, a couple hours outside of New York City, and that was a really intentional life decision uh, to be like. Rooted in the geographic empire of one of the most important cities in the country, but also uh, decidedly away from it, right? And um, and, and that was a, a decision that came from just a personal bias and like style of life decisions, and also from the fact the viability of as basically an independent, you know, consultant, content creator, et etc. I, I live on the internet, right? That's that's really where my business is conducted. I think it's interesting to consider how many people are. Like how this changes the uh, perceived essentialness of the city.
1: Yeah. So, um, okay. So my thinking my on this is basically that you, there's two. Okay. So cities are one of the most important technologies um, humanity's ever created for increasing the velocity of ideas and wealth. Um, basically what cities do is we, it's, it's a form of concentrated energy, right? So um, you, when you're in a city, especially a, a dense city like Chicago or San Francisco, um, you just bump into other smart, pe- smart, talented people with resources all the time. And so you can go from an idea, can form that in your head, and then you can just bump into a whole bunch of people who are relevant to executing that idea in a really short period of time. And you find the capital and the people to execute on it. And so ideas go from like birth to, you know, real world execution um, in an increasingly short period of time. And that's why there's like fascinating data showing how basically the bigger the city is, the faster, the velocity of all the socioeconomic, um, and anything that's any metrics that have to do with, with um, connecting with people, um, just increase by, uh, so the exponent is, um, 1.15, which basically means if you double the size of the city, then you increase the number of patents per capita by 115%. Uh, you increase crime also. It's not just a good thing. It's also a bad things. So crime increases by 115% if you double the size of the city. So you increase the city by hundred percent, you increase the number of, um, you increase how much investment capital there is. You increase, um, wealth per capita. You increase education per capita. You increase, um, everything that involves humans coming in contact with each other. Um, and vice versa, the, the flip side is also true. There's actually um a 0.85 um exponent on um uh the um resource uh, allocation required. So for example, if you double the size of city, you increase the city by 100 percent it only takes 85% as many roads, right? It only takes 85% as much oil um and natural gas and uh and uh, you know wiring and pipes and and all the other um you know infrastructure that's needed to connect with people because uh it's just more efficient to have people closer together. Um So cities are, cities are super um, important for, um, for innovation. However, um, interestingly, there's like a secondary, um, there's like a whole separate world that was created called the internet, right? Where you can live in virtual cities and not just physical cities. And that's basically what you're doing right now, right? So you're engaging in an experiment, which is unusual for like smart, ambitious people don't usually typically decide to go and move to rural areas, um, but you can totally do it. You just have to be extra skilled at like, you know, inhabiting as a citizen, this new world called the internet where you can then Twitter is, you know, essentially like a giant city, right? It's actually, I would argue, Twitter is more like a giant, you know, it's more like a country. And then each um, little tribe on Twitter is like its own city. Um, except it, it's, it's uh, just like you have in real cities where you have people that are into different topics of the same thing on Twitter. And Twitter is just like this fascinating kind of intellectual potluck where everybody kind of brings their ideas and, and things that they have discovered that are interesting to the table. And if you're really good at using the internet, oh man, it's just a, it's a, you know, a true cornucopia of like delight for polymaths and, and autodidacts.
0: Well one of the things that I think is really interesting is that I don't think that you I don't think that a person could make the type of decision that I made without having done their stint in the city. Like there's a, there's a part of me that feels like the the cities that we choose to spend our 20s in are are becoming kind of like a, an extended college experience, especially in terms of the networking that used to be promised to you through college, right? Like part of the premise of colleges that I think hasn't necessarily held up as well as times have changed is that you get this really powerful network, right, that you get to be a part of. And maybe that's true the, the higher up the, the, you know, the exclusivity you get. Um, but by and large, it's the the cities that you spend your time in that creates your professional networks that you carry with you for the rest of your life. I went really deep on, um, I mean, not just cities, but, you know, we both have uh, context in like the Summit Series community, right? And these, these places that are themselves uh, of of virtual kind of uh, a network that connects people um, that creates just more opportunity to then make a different like day to day decision because that those those networks continue to exist, uh, you know, without without daily or weekly maintenance being in a particular city.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and the people who migrate from the physical and, and I do most people obviously have a, a mix of like internet, um, you know, world and, and physical world, Adams world and bits world. Um obviously the, the more skilled you are at using both, um, the more effective you can be. Um, but you can totally just use one or the other. Um, and many do, right? Typically the older you are, the more you lean on the atoms world and the younger you are, the more you lean on the bits world. And it's pretty clear where humanity is heading right now. Um one thing I think is really interesting is seeing how humanity is organized um to fight coronavirus. Um so as governments, you know, move slowly and plod and um bungle things. Um, at the same time I've never seen, so I, I, I hang out in, um, certain activist um, circles and I just watch how, how, how the organization movements happen. And I, I try to intervene when I think, um, there are opportunities to do so, uh, that are high leverage. Um, but oh my God, the number of, the number of, of, of different organizations I've seen spring up just in the past couple of weeks. Um, how many different individual people have like become entrepreneurs overnight, um, coming up with either novel techniques to create masks or ventilators or you name it. Right. Um, and people have been reaching out to me, like wanting to help, wanting help with with their projects, and um, just seeing like infinite Discords and Telegrams and <clears throat> email lists and <clears throat> like Zoom calls and using all the new technologies that humanity has. Um, you know, these technologies have been around for a while now, but but just the scale at which humanity is using them now as tools to think together. Um, it, it it's like it's it's I sort of just kinda of imagine it like, you know, everyone so you know there's humanity has seven, you know, point five billion neurons, right? We're all in neurons in the collective global brain. Um and this is just this is one of those giant shocks that's like causing us to like reform all these new connections um and use all these new tools available. It's just one thing that's crazy is like how many people have like gotten by in life so far, not figuring out not knowing how to use um these technologies uh to engage. And now everyone's basically being forced to. Um and the result is that like as humanity, as, as, you know, let's say that 20% of humanity was just pretty bad using technology. Um, they would, you know, a bit here and there, right. But, but generally, you know, good old fashioned handshakes and, you know, looking in the eye kind of um, people. Right. Um, and now they're being forced to use this technology and they're, and like, I can see it with my parents, for example, like my mom in particular, my dad's always been excited about new technology, but like my mom is like now suddenly like really is starting to be really motivated to embrace these technologies. Um, and it's really interesting to just consider what what the implications of that are because each of these technologies are basically thinking tools they're all extensions of our mind right in the same way that the phone is like an extension of um you know of of your mind because the phone is your gateway to humanity right so you can think with 7.5 billion people every time you pull out your phone um and your computer is obviously the same thing and and you know like the screen is like an extension of your eyes and and so it's just it's really 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 fun to to think about what that means
0: one of the interesting implications, so i i agree that i i've also seen uh you basically have people who thought that they were generationally um, exempt, kind of, from needing to care about technology, or just you know uh, whatever. Like the the basically our parents and our parents' parents, who uh, you know used the very barest minimum, but who are now. Discovering these tools and discovering that they're uh, fun, they're interesting, they allow them to do things, etc. Right? They're no longer intimidated by them. They've been forced through that fear barrier. I think that this is a, a, a one of the things that I worry most about in this. Uh, on the other side of this scenario, has to do with retirement and retirees. To me, it just seems like we have an unfathomable perfect storm. Of destruction, right? Um, I think that uh, I, I'm not sure that markets are really pricing in a lot of these second order economic effects yet, right? So if you see stock market declines, Uh, you obviously have people who have been promised that their retirement is predicated on the stock market pumping out seven and a half percent per year forever, right? That's how their financial planning has gone. So you have that, uh, for folks who have, um, invested in real estate, uh, which is that, you know, was previously at all time highs, right? You are going to need to start selling that at a time that no one's buying. No one's able to buy, right? Millennials not being able to buy real estate just got an even bigger knock to it, uh, Let's say that some need to get other jobs. Well, you can't get jobs because a lot of them are being automated away, right? I think that certain types of uh, <clears throat> quote-unquote low-skilled jobs, right—the the checkout people, uh, et cetera—are just going to be this would be a, a, a killing blow for them, right? Because people will be concerned about uh, actual health outcomes, and then you have probably continued restrictions on senior citizens as we deal with kind of rolling waves of this over the next couple of years, uh, which seems like anyone who's plausibly looking into how the economy comes back online, you know, is is thinking in those terms. So it's kind of this like very troubling set of things. Um, And I'm not sure, I don't know what the path to, uh, I don't know how the internet solves that, but I do think that at least there's some potential in the fact that, like I said, or, you know, you said we're kind of over this uh, fear barrier and people are discovering these tools.
1: Yeah, it's it's um. So one thing that's gonna be interesting to think about is like what are the implications from an inequality perspective? Because I happen to be of the opinion that we have plenty of money to take care of everyone uh, if we're better at organizing the resources we have. Now, as far as how to do that, well, that's much harder, right? Um, and I tend to side with the simpler, more straightforward solutions like UBI um, versus like trying to do top-down, really complex bureaucracies required to integrate uh, and you know distribute the resources. Um, but um, it'll be clear, I mean, it's, it's going to become increasingly clear here, the, necess- like, the necessity of doing that, um, because people need to pay the bills, and they need to keep the lights on, and they need food. Um, so one thing, so, so uh, there's a really great book called, called The Great Levers, which basically that there are four separate um, inequality um, leveling um, shocks, uh, war, famine, um, or no, war, plague, um, uh, revolution, um, and state collapse. Um, and then throughout all of human history, um, the argument is that basically those are the four things that led to the, you know, when inequality would basically increase, um, consistently for, you know, decades or centuries. And then one of those four things you know, war, you know, pl- uh, plague, um, revolution and state collapse would happen. And then, uh, there would be a, a giant leveling of inequality. And the reason why is because, um, basically rich people have more to lose. Right. So, um. if if you're only living a subsistence level, you just can't lose that much um, compared to somebody who owns, you know, uh, 1% of the collective GDP. Um, And so this is clearly one of those situations where that's possible. Um, And, and, and so, uh, you know, if people can't pay the bills and can't feed them, feed their families, then that's when you get really, 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 um, you know, problematic, like revolutionary conditions, right? And so it's just going to be necessary to um, distribute um, resources um, from the haves to the have nots in some capacity, right? Um, You know, whether it's printing unlimited money and then doing it indirectly, or it's doing it in a more direct way um, of some kind of resource um, distribution. But um, um, so, so, so from that frame, um, this is clearly one of, those, um, one of those moments in history where that kind of large scale change um, is possible. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's weird to be in that situation, although it does seem like it was inevitable for a long time now, but but <laughs> these things often are.
0: Yeah, it's a, I mean, obviously the the Bitcoiners in the audience, who's kind of like the the core core listeners here, a lot of this stuff feels like the acceleration of trends that were already existing. that have their roots in 2008 and earlier. You know, um, in terms of the the role of the government in the economy, largely speaking, um, you know, a, a phenomenal percentage of GDP this year is going to be government spending. You have uh, you know these facilities being set up not just to backstop uh, American business and American credit lines. But uh, currency lines all around the world. Um, You know, there's a really interesting uh, thesis that I was reading from um, someone on Twitter that. Uh, you know, basically, the 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 folks who are interested in Bitcoin are seeing the inflationary pressure on the other side of this, right? Based on the the, the world's demand for dollars, based on the shortage of dollars, and uh, looking to Bitcoin, right, as this very clear alternative. And I think you you are seeing some interesting anecdotal evidence of people getting interested in Bitcoin for that reason, right? Having the having happen at the exact same time as this mass quantitative easing kind of really reinforces that core narrative point. Uh, but someone pointed out that it may be, you know, the other thing that we're seeing is uh, uh, USD pegged stable coins have uh, exploded this year, right? Significant increases, billions of dollars of new inflows, right? New new, new stable coins created. And it may be that part of that is uh, is not kind of, you know, US hyperinflation or anything like that. Uh, but actually, um, people around the world, right. Who are in less stable monetary regimes who want exposure to cash, who can't get in. So it could be that Bitcoin becomes something that isn't just about, uh, that isn't kind of dependent on us hyperinflation, um, but is in fact a, uh, a, an answer for people who are trying to get out of their local currency regime, which is being devalued relative to the dollar.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that, um, that always pops in my head in these kind of situations. So I, I've spent a lot of time being very wrong about trying to predict uh, future price movements of um, <laughs> of cryptocurrencies. Uh, although, fortunately, I've gotten the, the macro uh, trends largely right. Um, but uh, basically, okay. So in times of extreme um, chaos like this, we're in a, a period of um, extraordinary punctuated equilibrium. Um, that tends to be good for the incumbents, or for the the you know for the challengers um, versus the incumbents. Um, and so there's all kinds of counter trends. Um, and so I tend to just, my head spins into, and then explodes when I try to think about, um, the secondary effects of all the, you know, the macro, um, of the macro landscape in general, because on one hand you've got like governments, um, gaining, you know, possibility of extraordinary new powers and orwellian police states um you know the probabilities of those outcomes seem to be going up um in these kinds of situations and all for very sensible reasons like it seems like the authoritarian countries have done a better job of managing um the uh virus response so far um and so it, it's hard to argue with their current success on the other hand there's all kinds of really alarming um uh you know consequences of that uh of those you know uh you know giving up the liberties that usually come with those um but volatility, but but just chaos and volatility is just good for innovation um in general, so lots of lots of interesting things to think about there
0: all right, so uh, we've kind of been very high level at a lot of these things, which I think is obviously that's where where my perspective tends to sit and live, but like maybe let's go through just a few of these second order effects that are much more specific and tangible uh that that have got you interested,
1: yeah, so one thing that pops my hand right away is uh there's a there's quote that I love which is basically that you know a real problem um, has the ability to eliminate all the uh, <laughs> all the non real problems right so it's easy to like create a bunch of fake problems that don't exist um, or exist all in your head um, and, and this is true at the humanity level too right so there's a bunch of like prob- like low leverage problems that we might be focusing on and this is one of those shocks that forces us to confront the real problems right Um And so some implications of that are things like, okay, so, um, you know, we have we have an economic uh, freeze, which leads to a decrease in fossil fuels. Right. So we're going to get all kinds of really interesting data on what happens if you just shut down the global economy. Um, And we're going to be able to make new decisions with that new data on like what the best interventions are. Right. Like how do we allocate resources efficiently there or like social distancing? So right now, you know, we're, we're all engaged in social distancing. Um, but in some ways that's that's not true. What we're actually just doing is physical distancing. Uh we're not allowed to be in person together, but we can still be social. Um so again we're having to use all these new tools. Um and so we're getting all these new skills using these new tools. Um and that leads to interesting new um, behavioral patterns too. Like you can't see people in person, then you're using technology to connect with them, which means that you, you might connect with very different people than you would otherwise, right? You might talk to the same five people on a regular basis, like every day. Um, but suddenly you're hanging out on Facebook more and you're like, oh, maybe I should connect with these old friends because they're there. I see them on Facebook, right? Um, or things like... Uh, you know, like, okay, so loneliness, right, is, is, is an obvious problem. Mental health. There's gonna be all kinds of mental health issues that happen as a result of this. Um, you know, the more resilient you are, then the more likely you are to do well in a chaotic time like this. But, you know, there's lots of people that are struggling for all kinds of different reasons. Um, and so one thing I can see happening is that, you know, if you are feeling lonely because you're isolated, um, as many people are, um, and you're not as good at, or as comfortable using technology to connect socially with other people, then you have to get that social need met some other way. And one way of doing that, that I think I can see hundreds of millions or billions of people doing is just leaning more heavily on relationships with fictional friends. Right. Like characters and TVs, movies, books. Um, these are in a very real sense like real friends of ours, right? Um, uh, because when you're reading a book, um, you 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 really are teleporting into the story. Like you are teleporting into the protagonist and you're seeing the world through the eyes of the protagonist. And so the protagonist's friends are your friends and so on. And then you for, you obviously you stop reading the book and then you forget about it and you go back into your normal body. Um, but what one thing that can lead to is basically lines increasingly blurring between, you know, your internet friends and your fictional friends and your real friends. And so that's interesting to think about because that that seems like an inevitability um, if you think about like the overall trajectory of, of technology throughout time, um, and uh, just like how I remember a long time ago I got confused back when my Harry Potter phase like I kept getting confused between fan fiction and like canon in the Harry Potter world, uh, but it was really embarrassing, um, and that was like a really narrow version of it, um, but like this is this is how like a lot of Black Mirror episodes start, which is obviously depressing to think about, but obviously Black Mirror is is designed to be cautionary tales to force us to think about the role of technology and how to not get f- up. Um, and so we can, we can learn a lot of those lessons and make sure that we, we build the technology to be able to, um, you know, keep these relationships healthy and, um, and effective. Um, but it's gonna lead to a lot of innovation in those things.
0: I mean, it sounds like there's, if I had to pick like a meta theme in some ways, actually, let me, let me take it from this angle. Uh, at the end of these podcasts, I've been asking everyone, uh, kind of like, you know, reasons for optimism is reasons for pessimism. And I think that it's very clear just listening to you that, uh, you have a lot of optimism coming out of this. And in some ways it feels like the, 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 sum, you know, the TLDR is when the entire world joins the internet and learns how to use the internet, some amazing things could happen.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the best way to put it. And part of the reason I'm optimistic is because, well, I'm an entrepreneur. So you just have to be kind of pathologically delusional uh, about uh, how great everything is, or you would never take the insane risks that being an entrepreneur uh, requires. Also, people are so depressed right now, um, that I feel sort of a, a moral obligation to, uh, to try to um, help, you know, counterbalance that, um, the panic. Um, also, I already went through the panic myself, uh, <laughs> as I have been uh, thinking about this for a long time. Um And, um, and yeah, so, so basically this is, so as humanity merges with the internet, the implications of that are that, so for example, some people say, oh, this is going to lead to increases in nationalism, right? Because now we have to, um, we have to huddle up, right? We can't have open borders because open borders lead to more, um, you know, migration and, um, you know, foreigners coming in with their diseases and stuff, which is totally true. That can totally happen. Uh, but a lot of people... Spend way too much time thinking about physical borders and none of time thinking about non physical borders. Um, so physical borders are a very real thing. Obviously, countries are like very real entities, and, and there's relationships between countries, and there's people and ethnicities and groups. Um, but but I think it's actually um, what people miss is like thinking about the other kinds of borders. Like there's you know we're connected in all kinds of ways that are very real. So for example, there's any given moment there's about five thousand cargo ships. You know, traveling the world, um taking stuff around, right? And each cargo ship has like thousands of individual containers in it, which is like basically thousands of individual trucks uh on each cargo ship. There's three hundred underseas cables connecting every you know island in the world to the global brain, right? And so in some ways, um and and you think about all the other ways that we're connected too, via like pipes and wires and and all, all the infrastructure, right, that we can't see that's invisible, it's below the ground, right? Or it's electromagnetic infrastructure that's also invisible to the to the human eye. And so as a result of this, um, humanity learns how to think together um and how to create together. Um as like it's really easy for especially again, you see this a lot when you travel. Like people get in these little bubbles, right? And they they have they see the same handful of people every day, they do the same things every day, and their their whole reality is very local, right? It's very like within a 200 yard radius of their, where they wake up. Right. And then maybe another 200 yard radius of where they go to work. Um, especially in poor countries uh, where they don't move at all. Right. They don't even leave their village. Um, and so this is the first time that a lot of people are going to be moving. Um, now they're not going to be moving their bodies, but they're going to be moving their minds. And when they move their minds, uh, once you learn how to move your mind instead of just your body, um, you basically unlock the ability to, um, move anywhere at the speed of thought, right. At the speed of light. Um, because you can travel the world through your computer um, and you know, humanity first started learning to do this with, um, you know, with, with books and then with radio and then with TV. Right. And so if you think about like, what is local to you? like the people around you. So it used to be that, you know, the people around you were the people you could literally see with your physical eyes. Right. And then obviously with books, you can then see with the writer's eyes and then with radio, you could see with the, with the, um, you know, the narrator's voice and then with video, you know, basically the, the size of your neighborhood increases to include 7 billion people. <laughs> because when you watch a, a documentary, say about, um, you know, a tribe in the Andes, uh, you essentially travel to the Andes. Right. And so, um, and then the internet obviously is the first tool that's, that's two directional, right. Cause you couldn't really, um, you know, there was only one directional conversation between the, content creators and you in the other three mediums Uh, but the internet is the tool that lets you um, contribute to humanity so basically like as far as like, you know, with the notion, like how do we push the, the innovation out to the edges of the network? Um, the internet is massively decentralized, um, compared to these other, um, technologies, obviously not as much as us, um, you know, crypto nerds would, uh, it would envision. Um, but, but it's, but when you think about like a billion people suddenly like integrating into the global brain, um, and exploring in all these nooks and crannies that they typically didn't have time for previously or the motivation to do previously, um, I think we're going to see a whole lot of, um, uh, really interesting flows information in all kinds of ways that we didn't see before. Like memes, for example, like one thing is fascinating is when you watch memes evolve, like it used to be that memes were like super localized and contained. And now like memes get translated across languages so much faster. And, um, yeah, the rate of innovation in like, in, in all different forms of memetics is accelerating rapidly. Um, so it, there's, there's lots of reasons to be, um, really panicked and freaked out right now. and There's also lots of reasons to be excited about it as well.
0: Perfect note to end on, um, Emerson. I think uh, you know we've spent a lot of time on this show with folks who are um, you know uh, concerned, uh, justifiably so, about the state of the global economy and what happens on the other side of this. It is nice, it is refreshing to have someone kind of walk through a number of these second-order effects that aren't uh, just disastrous, right? And that could actually unleash new creative capacity. Though, so, thanks so much for hanging out. This was fun. As I said at the beginning, I never want to be minimizing of the pain that people are going through right now and the real travails that we still have to face together. But I do think it's important that we take some time to zoom out and ask these questions, not just of how the world will change, but how we want it to and how we can exert agency to create outcomes that we believe are better in the face of adversity, we create new things, we create new opportunities. It's very cliche, but these are the most trying times are where we grow the most, we learn the most, we become potentially our best selves. But that takes focus and that takes diligence and it takes a willingness to do it. So I hope you enjoyed the slice of Emerson's brain that we just had here. I'll link to the second order effects document. I think it's super fascinating. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. For now, guys, that's it. Stay safe and take care of each other. Peace.